parts unknown, here to defend the world from mediocrity, one awesome thing at a time. It's the World Famous Defenders! Hello again and welcome to the world famous Defenders, the only podcast with, I'm going to say it guys, with the balls to ask the question, huh? <laughs> As always, I am Eric. And I am John. And I am a little confused about my identity. So let's stick it to him Brandon this week. Let's ask, what? What? <laughs> Once again, we ask... Huh? <laughs> oh, who we've who got, are we asking huh with today? Well, let me just like first say that this is a long time coming. I don't know. Our multitude of fans are probably worried about us. The desperate. Uh, they worry, but they enjoy our consistency. I mean, they're probably, we're like, at this point, we are the Richard Simmons of, of podcasts. Everybody's wondering where we are. We are the we're day the clown our- cried of podcast oh god but uh we have taken a little bit longer putting this show together than we have previous shows and there's a reason for that because we've had some uh we've had some personal issues we've had some scheduling problems uh and it's not for lack of wanting to do the show we've wanted to do this show really badly our topic this time around is the 1988 yes john carpenter film they live. They, they live. live. They live. Uh, the problem has been Wait, that... That's the, that's the wrong John Carpenter. That's the wrong that's one. <laughs> Although, pretty good sound effects. Thank you. We've been trying now, to get this thing for... What are we... Uh, I mean, we actually conceived of this show shortly after our last yeah. episode. And we And we were actually, like, let's bang this next one right out. We'll have it in the can right. and ready to go. Boom. And the idea was to do one that was like kind of quick and dirty uh, just by having a conversation about a movie with someone that we know that uh, has a lot to say about it. And that's interesting. Um, and so just to introduce our, our guest this time around, we're going to be talking with David Schmidt, uh, who is a professor of English at the University at Buffalo. He's also the author of several books. He's written Natural Born Celebrities, Serial Killers in American Culture, Zombie Talk, Culture, history, politics, violence in American popular culture, and actually, he's all about he's uh, he's he's constantly pointing out when if you hang out with him, he's constantly pointing out how violent American culture is from its inception to the present, um, and he has a, a sort of outsider point of view on that. And it's uh, he's got some amusing observations about it. He also is the author of Globalization and the State of Contemporary Crime Fiction. And I know him through The Great Courses, where he did a course on the secrets of great mystery and suspense fiction. We should have him back on and talk about uh, this kind of subgenre of crime fiction that I've been noticing. And it's all about, it's like narco fiction. It's all specifically about like 
the sale and laundering of money re revolving around narcotics, like this narco fiction, like Breaking Bad and The Wire are kind of examples of that kind of thing. Yeah, he's a, he's a walking encyclopedia of anything, yeah. uh, you know, crime fiction related or true crime. I mean, he's a fascinating person to hang out with and and talk about these things with. Uh, and we just sort of skim the surface of the, you know, of David Schmidt talking about this one movie. Yeah. And as always, the world famous Defenders is brought to you by Roomba. Roomba, the vacuum cleaner your cat won't run away from. My cat rides on top of it. Yeah, the, the, the vacuum cleaner you'll follow around, around with your iPhone for some reason. <laughs> So here he is, so, and I would like to note that uh, John risked great life, great threats to life and limb. You recorded this at, at 65 miles an hour. I am an adventurous fellow. <laughs> yeah. Actually, be honest, Jonathan. How how fast were you traveling during Probably the closer to 80ish? Yeah, <laughs> from zero to 80, you were driving in New Jersey. That's right. I was <laughs> going traveling way from... too fast or not moving at all. That's pretty much. That's pretty much true. Uh, I was coming back from Baltimore to the great You're state You're coming of New back Jersey. from D.C., weren't you? Oh, D.C., via Baltimore. Oh, did you, you swung through Baltimore? Oh, yeah. 95. Oh, yeah. 95. Yes, but that's how... WFMD. That's how, we, that's how, we get, how desperate we got. We just we had to bang this one out. We couldn't wait any longer. So without further ado... Here's Let's it. go. Let's go. You know, we've had to cancel this so many times, and uh, we finally decided that we do this rain or shine today. Uh, yep. My friend Jonathan, who we can't see, is currently in a car driving from Maryland to New Jersey uh, <laughs> after attending his mother's uh, heart surgery and uh, and recovery and shaky recovery. Uh <laughs> I'm in my bedroom because my wife and child are downstairs uh, washing diapers, and <laughs> the washer is too loud for me to record in there. And uh, Eric is at home. Yeah, after, I'm at home. Yeah, I'm at home. At, for the first time in months after yeah. uh, having been put on assignment every time that we schedule this. Yeah. Uh, Yay! So, but, Huzzah! Now, uh, all right, I'm Eric. This is David Schmidt, who is a professor of English at the University at Buffalo. Hello. How are you doing? Hi, David. How are you doing? Good. Nice to meet you. David, are you in some sort of awkward? Uh... Yeah. Well, actually, is your we had house on fire. Is there? Uh... <laughs> Do I need to turn off? Hold on a sec. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> is that better? Yeah. There you go. So David had to cancel yeah. once because of a concussion after a car accident. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh -huh. How are you feeling? Is your brain all right, David? Uh, it's about as good as it's going to get. So, yeah, I think that's good. <laughs> uh, well, we actually it's kind of difficult have you... to tell the difference between concussion and without a concussion. <laughs> well, we did. I told you guys not to build the new World Famous Defenders podcast studios on an ancient Indian burial ground. But right, you I know. Listen to listen. me. Did you realize that all of America is built on an ancient Indian burial ground? <laughs> the entire country is cursed. Point. David, we wanted to have you on because uh, we, we wanted to do a show talking about the movie 
They Live by John Carpenter. Yeah. Yes. And uh, last time I saw you, we were having a conversation about They Live, and uh, I thought you'd be a good yeah. guest to join us. Uh, let's start out. Could you, just for our listeners, David, could you give like a sort of um, a summary of what the movie is about for people who haven't seen it or, or haven't seen it in a while? Um, yeah, they live, uh, it's a story of a guy called John Natter, who, um, is unemployed and he arrives in LA looking for work and he gets a job and is living temporarily at a kind of homeless encampment in the shadow of downtown LA. When he notices some strange in this church across the street from the homeless encampment, so he does a little bit of investigating, and at the same time as the uh, armed forces of L.A. in the shape of the police uh, show up to level the encampment, he finds these um, sunglasses uh, in the building. And when he puts them on, he realizes that the world is in fact being run by a kind of coalition uh, between robots and humans who are working hand-in-hand hand with them. And then basically the rest of the film is dedicated to him, first of all, trying to get his friend to uh, accept this knowledge and then basically kicking as much ass as they can until the end of the film. Yeah, it's sort of there's a moment at which the movie goes from having some plot development to being kind of a um, a sleigh fest. Yeah, a bullet storm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, and what, if anything, it teaches us the best way to convince a new friend of something is to repeatedly punch them in the face until they agree with you, correct? Because this contains, we've got to talk at some point about the great fight scene. Right. I mean, that, <clears throat> that is one of the great fight scenes of all time. Yes. It is. And it's certainly a method of argumentation that's always worked for me and my friends. <laughs> yeah. I realized. <laughs> yeah. I was just <laughs> kicking your ass the other day, Brandon, if I remember. That's right. Yeah, you really gave it to me. Yeah, but you were yeah. right. I, uh, right. You, you should have gone, you should have supersized. I well, should have. I mean, you one, should have. I say, like one of the things I love about the film is that it it kind of like reminds you of about a million other films seen before, and yet at the same time, it's nothing like them. So it's both like really familiar and completely different at the same time. And I think that's part of the charm of the film is that like how it manages to pull off that combination. Well, yeah, it's sort of a genre movie, but it's sort of a, a genre blending movie because you've yeah. got elements of. Of the horror movie, the sci-fi, you know, sort of monster movie, the western, the yeah, the dystopian, I mean, actually, in, the dystopian near future. There's mm -hmm. even uh, Jonathan Lethem in his book on They Live, which was published by uh, it's in the Deep Focus series, published by uh, Soft Skull Press. He talks about the sort of even like sort of porn movie uh, codes oh. that pop up in it, like gay porn, sort of like moments where you think that maybe. There's going to be a sex scene, and then there's not. <laughs> Until randomly, the only nudity in the entire movie is at the end uh, yeah. when you know they sort of reveal all the aliens on the planet by blowing up a, um, a satellite dish that's broadcasting this uh, sort of cloaking signal of some sort. Uh, and suddenly you see this uh, one of the, the aliens having sex with a girl, and you see her tits for like two seconds. Mm -hmm. And it's like right at the end of the movie, and it's like, what? Why did that happen? Yeah. Right. But it's you... really funny, actually, because before I read the Jonathan Latham book, I rewatched the movie, 
Yeah. And that scene where Frank asks uh, Nada if he's got anywhere to stay, Frank is his co-worker on the building site, without even knowing Lethem's book, I thought, wow, how did I never recognize that aspect of the film before? And I don't know what, I, you know, I just thought, like Lethem says, the movie was about to veer off into some kind of, like, gay porn scenario. But the friendship, obviously, you know, between Nada and Frank is so, like, central to the film, but it seems like it's going to go off in a very different direction at the beginning of the film. Yeah, it's it's the most unintentionally gay scene since Top Gun. You're like, uh... <laughs> I wonder if there could be a gay edit Unintentionally this. with gear... I think there's air quotes there. I think it's, yeah. uh, <laughs> Top Gun is unintentionally some... Uh... <laughs> well, actually, David Fincher says that, that they had no idea that there was any sort of gay subtext in Top Gun. They were totally shocked, and Tom Cruise was apparently very angry about that. I can believe that. But David, you said uh, they were robots. I've always thought they were aliens. Well, well, that's the other part of the film that sort of you know, open to multiple interpretations, like robots, aliens, zombies. I mean, they're there for. Um, a lot of people to interpret them how they want because I know some people swear up and down that they live as a zombie film even though you know there's nothing zombie-like about them yeah but they're also robotic and they're also in a strange kind of way um, sort of hybrid alien human figures as well so there are a lot of different they're really whatever you want them to be so I think that's one of the reasons the film is so popular is that it's so scattershot that it gives its viewers like so many different things to identify with and to connect to. And that, by the way, that, that includes the whole issue of what our reaction to the presence of these aliens is meant to be. Because obviously on the surface, like the only common sense reaction is, oh no, the planet is being run by aliens. But the movie also leaves open the possibility that some other people are going to say, oh good, the planet is being run by aliens that explains everything and that's one of the things i like about the film is that you know there's lots of different there's lots of room for the viewer to move around in the film well and and roddy piper at that moment that he sees the sort of uh the reagan-esque uh politician talking on television and it says obey behind him and he's sort of blathering on this kind of uh, uh political message he says uh I, i'm kind of paraphrasing but he says oh it it figures it would be something like this Right, but I, I have, in the in the yeah. credits, the creatures are actually referred to as ghouls. Yeah, and they do have a sort of decayed human look to them. I mean, I, to me, they look more organic than robotic, and but their, you know, their technology suggests some sort of advanced. Um, but who knows? I mean, who knows if they're indigenous to the, this planet or from another? Or uh, that's not really ever specified. Although they do, at one moment, get sort of transported to that uh, that strange. Oh yeah, uh, there's that like where they shoot out. There's that one scene where they get on like the inner space, like hyperspace freeway, and one of them shoots out into space. Yeah. Yeah. But that's just one aspect of the film that's like just fleshed out enough. Yeah. To kind of like give us the bare bones, but yeah, you know, yeah, more it, than that, it explains um, how they get yeah, from A to B. Back to what Brandon said. Yeah, but what Brandon said about uh, Roddy Piper's reaction, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons the the film works is that 
you know, when the big revelation comes, there is that kind of side of where people are going to go, yeah, that's right. That's what I was expecting all along. And so there's this kind of like almost taken for granted um, status to the whole notion that there's a cabal like in control of things. And we may not have known that the cabal was aliens, but we always suspected that there was a small group of, of things that was in charge of everything. And so it just plays into that idea. Yeah, even if it, uh, and there are like clearly people who are in league with them because they stumble across that whole banquet where everyone's, all the rich people are like, you're assuming the one percenters are like toasting and celebrating. Right, I love that scene because Frank and uh, Nata are standing at the back of the banquet hall, sticking out like sore thumbs, yet no, no yeah. one apparently sort of thinks that they stick out like sore thumbs, you know, they're just assumed to be of the crowd, even though, you know, now spends the whole scene with his, uh, with his arms crossed, concealing his guns. <laughs> and Frank, Frank is even more out of place. And yet no one thinks to sort of say to them, what the hell are you doing here? And why are you not wearing tuxedos? You know, so there's not even like, you know, any kind of basic inquiry into like what's happening at this point of the story. Yeah. Somebody, one but guy yeah, actually I becomes mean, a tour guide for him. Well, you know who that guy is. Right. But that guy is actually earlier in the movie, and he's listed in the credits as the Drifter. And he starts yeah. out, and he's sort of like this uh, sort of homeless guy that talks to uh, Nada early on in the film. And then he ends up in that he's been taken up by you know the ghouls or the by them, right? Yeah. And it, and it sort of raises the question of why, like if you're just some homeless guy on the street, why is this sort of cabal of all controlling alien ghoul robot creatures bothering to like bring you to their social club? Like it doesn't really make all that much sense. I would assume he ratted out the church. Oh, uh, maybe so. So it's like a reward. That's, for... that's what I've always assumed that it had something to do with like finding out who was making the sunglasses. Yeah. Well, what, maybe are the, he's... what are the glasses actually called? They have a name and it's slipping my mind at the moment. Shades? Um, no, they um, have they they have a particular name. Yeah. What yeah, I, I like about the, what I like about the tour guide guy is not only you know like Brandon says like what is he doing here and how did he get sort of brought over to the other side in the first place, but also that he has like apparently you know all access pass to what's going on behind the scenes. But the best thing about his uh, thing as a tour guide is that he knows like virtually nothing about what's going on i mean he sort of shows them that sort of uh, space travel machine and he clearly just has like the vaguest understanding of like how it works and like what's going on so he just basically again it's sketched out enough to allow the viewers just to sort of like fill in the details for themselves but i guess that's one of the things i like about the film that it doesn't get too kind of like bogged down in explanations i guess that's a generous way to put in it it sort of gives us the bare bones, and then you know, the, view, the viewer is allowed to sort of like fill in the details for themselves. I actually I have a theory about this, about why this film works this way. Um, and it's because we've all also seen and loved The Thing, which is uh, yeah. an earlier film made in 1982. They Live was made in 1988. Um, and... The Thing is a, I think, you know, for a horror movie, it's pretty nuanced. It's got some of the most amazing film effects 
of its time that yeah. actually hold up very well. It's a compelling, like well-crafted, uh, well-edited, lean, tight movie. Yeah. And by comparison, they live. It's just like <laughs> fucking all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's made six years later and it looks like shit. So I think that he, you know, it's, it, it's definitely meant to be a, a B movie, you know, in the way that you see a lot of representations of B movies in the film itself. Like they're watching uh, uh, a 1950s um, monster movie in the, uh, the homeless encampment right by the church at the beginning of the movie. And that, that kind of imagery comes up a few places, but the movie is based on a short story by Ray Nelson um, called eight o'clock in the morning. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was a, it was a story published back in the 1960s uh, in uh, one of the, you know, pulp magazines of the time. And then everybody says that it's based on that story. I think it's actually based on the comic book edition of the story, the comic book version of the story that came out in the early 80s. And I think that's probably where Carpenter saw it. Mm. Um, the story, well, the, the comic book is actually pretty good. Um, it's only a few pages long and it's a, you know, it works as a comic. Um, there's a guy who goes to a hypnotist, uh, the hypnotist, this is, I'm sort of drawing from the story and from the comic book at the same time, but the hypnotist says awake and this guy, George Nada awakes, awakens so much that, um, he can now see these things called fascinators, uh, that are sort of green reptilian lizard flesh. I mean, they're sort of basically like multi-eyed horror creatures, um, they have yellow eyes and they rule the earth. And so um, basically everything happens like in the in the movie. Um, everybody's being told to obey and to marry and reproduce and to work eight hours, play eight, eight, eight hours and sleep eight hours. Um, George Nada finally sees that these fascinators exist. And his first thought is, well, I should probably start stabbing them and cutting them and, you know, shooting them and bashing them. Uh, in, in all fairness, in the comic book and in the story, the fascinators are actually depicted eating people. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, you know, at one point he goes back into, uh, he goes and sees his girlfriend and slaps her around a bit for no really good reason. And then goes next door after the, finding out that there's some fascinators living there and he finds one of them eating a big pile of like human bones and babies and stuff. Um, the story... The comic book is actually pretty cool. You can find it online. We'll put a link up on the uh, on the site and everything for people to be able to find it. The story is god awful. I mean, it's just, it's just. There's somebody said I think of uh, of Arthur C. Clarke once that he had a, a blithe indifference for character development. Ray Nelson just, <laughs> it's not even indifference. It's like hostility <laughs> to <laughs> the character development and like scene building and stuff. It's it reads like a high school you know, a creative writing class uh, sketch or something. It's really, really bad. Um, but I think that, so my theory is that um, that Carpenter was purposely drawing on that. You know, he was taking something that he had probably seen as a comic book first and then went back to the story to get the sort of fuller picture of it. And then there's no glasses or anything in the... Um, in the story or comic version, it's just this sort of like opening, you know, awakening. Um, he sort of adds some of the, uh, the kind of 
very obvious ideological critique to the conversation, but I think he tries to make it look kind of like a piece of shit <laughs> to give it this like, you know, bad science fiction feel. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's very I hard. Possible. I mean, the... go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that um, it would help explain. I mean, it, it would help explain this feeling I have about the movie that that everything before that fight scene we were talking about earlier, everything else in the movie is kind of like a prelude to that. And then once both of them accept the truth of the reality around them, we we now sort of have the basis for what is like one long sort of fight scene for the rest of the movie. In mm -hmm. other words, I think like what, what the source material in the film have in common with each other is this notion that's really not questioned at all that the only appropriate response to finding out who is actually in charge is violence. That you've mm -hmm. got to kill as many of them as possible and you've got to do it in as spectacular a fashion as possible. Now, in the case of the film, you could argue that that's partly to play to Rowdy Roddy Piper's strengths as an actor, if I can put it like that. Because clearly, as we, as we know from those scenes when he's with his potential love interest, uh, Rowdy is not at his best when he's interacting with female characters. Yeah. He's at his best when he's punching people, when he's shooting things, when he's blowing things up. Well, yeah, that fight that. scene definitely. But I also think that, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think one of the reasons that people enjoy the, not only enjoy the film so much, but also enjoy the premise of the film is that both the characters and the viewer at one remove have the perfect justification to use as much violence as possible. They are on a crusade for the remainder of the movie and it doesn't matter how intensely violent they are, um, it's perfectly justified. And I think that that is, um, part of the, is part of the film that a lot of viewers find really, really, really sympathetic. Yeah, and they make a point out of kind of sparing people like they're clearly only yeah. clear, even though they literally that shows them literally just back and forth spraying bullets into crowds of people it, this film goes out of the way to show they're only killing the aliens so they're only so making it clear they're the good guys yeah it's, yeah. it's almost it's almost like there's a family resemblance between this film and something like charles bronson and death wish that once you're able to identify who the enemy is, you're perfectly justified in using vigilante means to, you know, not even solve the problem, just to basically kick ass. Because, you know, although there is like a little bit of framework in the film to suggest that something has been achieved by the end of the film, so that when the transmitter um, is disabled and people can see reality for what it is, actually is okay that's meant to be some kind of achievement but nada dies in the process frank dies in the process we don't know what the ultimate outcome of this you know revelation is going to be so the payoff of the film it seems to me is just in the violence it's not really in the sense that anything's been achieved or changed well actually speaking of the violence um zizek talks about uh how do you say his first name david oh slaboy yeah, Slavoj uh, Žižek, he's a, what, uh, Slovakian critic? Is he from Slovakia? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he writes about you know the sort of role of ideology in the movie, um, and he talks about. Well, he makes an interesting observation about the fact the le- the glasses are called Hoffman lenses, by the way, and so you can yeah. you can try to figure that out too. Like uh, supposedly, Doctor Hoffman was the one who invented LSD, but there's also like Abby Hoffman and uh, a couple of other. In fact, there's like a, a neo Nazi Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> There's there's actually a neo-Nazi theory that like Hoffman is supposed to uh, be some sort of representative of the of the international Jewry and stuff, which John Carpenter himself has been like, please shut up. Uh, there's but, also a, a great novel by there's a great novel by Angela Casa called The Infernal Desire Machines of Doctor Hoffman. I don't know uh, if that's got any connection, but it's an interesting you know thought. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're saying about Shishak. Oh, but he he talks about the fact that I mean this is an element that Carpenter added, which is having to put on the glasses. And if you right. look at a movie like The Matrix, um, The Matrix is about basically taking off the layer of ideology that is sort of foisted upon you uh, in order to see the truth. Um, and when I went to see the the Matrix, I I saw it. I really liked it. You know, went home and was still thinking about it. Thought, oh, that's really cool. And like. After like a couple of hours, I was like, wait a second, that's bullshit. Once you get into the world of Zion and stuff, you're still going to have ideology. So they're just on a different level. And I think they address that in the in the two sequels to The Matrix. But uh, Zizek points out that it's interesting that in Carpenter's version of the story, you have to put on glasses in order to as a like mechanism to see reality. And rather than going from, you know... Um, from what you would think maybe conventionally going from black and white to color, color being the real, uh, you actually go from color and black and white is the real. Yeah. And he also, he also finally to connect with the violence. He points out that, um, it, it makes an interesting point. I mean, I think that the, I think that the eight minute fight scene Mm -hmm. is there. You can't accidentally make an eight minute fight scene. So again, I think like (laughs) he's referencing the, the fact that, you know, Piper is, a WWF star, like he's using that that um, that recognizable trait of his actor to, you know, create the scene that involves a lot of like sort of wrestling moves. But it's like just a regular fight. It's not like a kung fu fight. It's not a fancy fight. Um, but Zizek points out that you can't be shown the truth without some sort of violence, you know, pushing you to be willing to see because you don't want to see. You have to have your head kicked in a little bit before you're mm-hmm. gonna finally, you know, put them on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's the question that always comes up about that fight scene: is that you know, why the hell does Frank put up such a fight? Why doesn't he just say, "Okay, I'll humor you. I'll put on the glasses." Right. Now, to some to some extent, that's kind of like um, not missing the point exactly, but Frank does have something to lose. And he explains to Nada what that is at the start of the scene when he says that, you know, he has a job, he has a family, he's finally making some money. And so he does have something to risk. So, in other words, a reading of that scene that just says Frank doesn't want to know the truth and that's why he won't put on the glasses. That's true, but that's not the whole story. Because Frank does have something to lose in a way that Nada does not. Even so... It obviously goes beyond that when he's getting his ass thoroughly kicked. You know, you do get to the point where you say, Frank, just put on the damn glasses and save yourself, (laughs) you know, a world of hurt. Um, But what's really interesting, I think, is 
after that fight scene happens and, you know, Frank puts on the glasses, there's a scene a little bit later on where um, Nada warns him not to leave them on too long. Because once Frank's wearing the glasses and he sees mm -hmm. the world for what it really is, he's obviously sort of fascinated and he's, he's trying to sort of like take it all in. So there is this like specific reference to the idea that wearing these glasses and seeing the world as it really is, is not about like joy. You know, it's not about revelation. It's not the pleasure of sort of seeing how things really work. It is painful. Um, and so it comes not only with that physical pain, but it also comes with a certain kind of responsibility. Like once you have that knowledge, what do you do with it? You know, what's the, what's the ethical thing to do? Now, it may seem that like what Nada and Frank decide to do doesn't have much to do with ethics, but in a sense it does because their violence is contrasted with the one percenters at the banquet. You know, those are people who also know the truth and they've made like a very, very different decision. So although, you know, you can say, yes, the violence in this film is gratuitous and excessive and funny, just like we would expect from a B movie. I think one of the things that really resonates about this film is that the violence is also sort of deeply ethical. It's sort of acknowledging the fact that they now know the truth and they're prepared to act on it, even though they know they're basically on a suicide mission. They still do something about it. Well, if you were to follow that thought through and we apply that logic to um, the drifter, well, he, he had nothing to lose. He had everything to gain by helping them, helping the, the right. aliens. So if that were true, then he if he w did sell out the church to get the riches, then he, he did it because he... He had everything to gain. He had nothing to lose. He was already, I mean, he was already homeless and drifting. Well, he said, and he says that too. He says, yeah. you know, he, uh, what is his line about selling out? Uh, the line, the line is apparently a quote. Uh, John Carpenter was quoting a, um, a studio executive on like, you know, we sell out every day, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. This is right. what we do for a living, and that's basically what Drifter says at the end. Is like, yeah, of course they sold out. Like, why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, right. That, okay, so you're that's the sense of Nada is. Well, I'm saying he's the hero of the film in kind of like an old-fashioned sense, you know. I mean, because you know he he does sort of sacrifice uh, everything, and there's not really any kind of. Um, there's not really any kind of even decision-making or hesitation on his part when he finds out what the truth is. He sort of immediately goes into sort of like action mode, you know? There's not even a thought of like keeping the knowledge to himself or not doing anything about it or just kind of trying to hide or protect himself, you know? It's, it's vengeance. It's like on his mind. Well, that's also very like Lovecraftian. In that, you know, the knowledge, the, the you discover something and it becomes very, there's no comfort in the knowledge that you learn. That it, oh, you learned something and you're like, well, I really wish I you maybe could have pulled the wool back over your eyes. But things that, it, that's very, you know, those unknowable horrors that you shouldn't learn. That's a common theme. And also with everybody yeah. ending up dead. Yeah. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Only instead Well, of, you know that, um, you know that, uh. John Carpenter wrote the screenplay for They Live under the pseudonym Frank Armitage, and Henry Armitage is, you know, a recurring uh, 
Yes, he's the librarian at uh, Miskatonic University. Right. And there's uh, Jonathan Lethem quotes a big chunk of the Dunwich Horror where uh, he, you know, they're talking about the Elder Gods and them, 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 they, them, 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 they. Yeah. Like that sort of faceless, uh, you know, we don't know where they are or, or what they're doing, but they're sort of, you know, beneath things and behind things. Did anybody else? Oh, yeah, I mean, I. Well, I was just going to come back to this idea that it, it's true that the knowledge brings with it responsibility. It brings with it pain. You know, it brings with it sort of um, displeasure. But I also think that from the audience's point of view, I want to come back to this idea that there's a lot of pleasure to be gained from seeing these characters learn the truth. Because um, this is uh, this cultural critic called Fred Jameson who um, has this idea of, of what he calls the cognitive map. And that's basically um, our attempt to get a sense of like how the world works. And he says it's really impossible to do um, in contemporary society because it's so incredibly complex. But he says the effort to try and construct a cognitive map is still worth making because it forces us to try and grasp what really makes the system work. And he also says that the, the conspiracy theory or the whole genre of the conspiracy theory, he calls it the poor person's cognitive map. And he says that basically the reason that conspiracy theories are so popular is because they provide people with a sense that everything is connected, that everything makes sense, that no matter what reality suggests, there is coherence, there is someone in charge. So that's what I was trying to get at earlier when uh -huh. I said, you know, part of the reaction to finding out that aliens are in charge is, oh, good, at least someone is in charge of the shitstorm. You know, it's not just kind of like random <laughs> chaos as it appears to be. You know, there is actually sort of someone calling the shots. Um, and I think that's like a, a perverse kind of pleasure to be sort of like derived from that sense that all the time we suspected that like some kind of dark malevolent force was actually in charge and it's like good okay my suspicions are actually being confirmed that's wonderful so now i can participate vicariously with roddy piper as he gives it gives them hell you know because i've been wanting to give them hell for my entire life because i felt that i've been getting the shit end of the stick and i feel that like you know i haven't gotten uh, a fair chance and so in other words that violence um that the characters perform on one level, I think is really sort of cathartic for a lot of viewers of the film. And it, it won't seem unnecessary to them at all. It will seem like a completely kind of logical response to what they find out. Well, you know, the, it's interesting because that's one of the reasons we thought that it would be interesting to discuss this movie. There are two points of intersection there that I think uh, are very relevant today because you have a ton of conspiracy theories out there now yeah. that are being taken seriously in not mainstream media so much. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on what you think of the uh, Russia investigations of the, because uh, some people think that that verges on, even some liberals think that that's uh, verges sometimes into conspiracy theory, but certainly, you know, Donald Trump's, uh, you know, delusions about the world and then his, his followers, willingness to accept certain uh conspiracy theories and the second part of it is you know this question um and there were like 350 editorial pieces written after uh, uh richard spencer got punched on 
uh, inauguration day of whether or not it's okay to punch a Nazi. And so there's the yeah. question of, you know, I mean, uh, when Nada finds out that they're aliens, his first reaction is like, okay, it's okay to go into a bank and, you know, scream, I came here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> and and improvised line, killing. by the way. Yes, it, it was improvised, improvised line. But, wow. I mean, it's okay to, to kill these sentient beings that have us under... I mean, maybe he's right. I'm just saying it. it's... Uh, it kind of, for me, it kind of dovetails into that. Is it okay to, you know, run up to a guy and and punch him on the street because he's been spewing uh, hate speech and has created a whole organization that is based on hate? Right. Discuss. Well, I mean, there's, there's two things that I would say to that. I mean, one is this whole thing that um, They Live is like a great example of a film that you can't assume anything about it as politics, you know, I mean, because you can, you can make perfectly persuasive readings of this film that see it both as like progressive and as conservative, depending upon, you know, which aspects of the film you focus on. But this whole issue about conspiracy theory, I'm actually working with a student right now on the question of whether conspiracy theories are still necessary in the age of Trump, because you've got a conspiracy theorist as our president, and you've also got got more than ever before um, clear evidence every day that the aliens, ghouls, robots, zombies, whatever you want to call them, are actually in power and they're actually meeting at the White House as we speak. <laughs> and so you don't, you don't need conspiracy theories anymore because we've got reality. But on the other hand, I do think you've, you've got this sense that a, a film like They Live is still going to um, appeal to people because it encourages a skepticism that no matter what we're being shown, what we're seeing, there's always a deeper layer. There's always like uh, another part of reality that is being hidden from us. And in fact, the more people insist that they're being transparent, the more people insist that nothing is being hidden, the more we suspect that precisely mm -hmm. the Precisely the opposite is the truth, right? So I've never heard like more talk about the so-called deep state than since um, Donald Trump became president. Right. So you know, and so it's it's unleashed um, a whole new wave of conspiracy theories, and it's given that genre um, a respectability that it's never had before. So I think you're right, Brandon. Like it's it's really interesting to watch a movie like um, They Live in that context. Did you actually have you seen this meme? I've only seen it on Twitter once, and uh, I I have it somewhere. But it was a uh, it was after Sean Spicer gave his first um, uh, press briefing, and somebody took a, a picture of him. And you know, there's that moment when he's standing in the grocery store in the movie, and he looks up and sees this sort of Reaganite uh, politician, yeah. and it flickers out and says "obey," and you see the uh, you know you see the 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 ghoul on television, and so somebody applied that to Sean Spicer as he's giving his press briefing and did it as right. a GIF, which I thought was pretty badass. And there is, isn't uh, there a They Live Donald Trump mask for Halloween? There yeah. is. Yes. There. David, you were supposed to wear it tonight. What My happened? Life imitating art or something. <laughs> or... It's, it's gone. It's Weirdly enough, it's gone missing. And I have my own conspiracy theories about that. Which <laughs> was problem, you know? Plus, it uh, was like 74 bucks. I know, yeah, that too. It's a little, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's a bit much. I mean, to me, this is uh, this is an interesting way to um, to link they live with the thing, 
because I think what those two films have in common with each other, apart from anything else, is that they're both um, on one level about, about trust. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as the alien is introduced into the world of the thing, trust becomes impossible. So any mm -hmm. sense of community that that group of men had before is, you know, eroded really, really rapidly. And trust becomes this almost impossible thing to achieve. And similarly, in They Live, obviously, on a very basic level, um, our trust in what we see is actually what we see and not an illusion. That kind of trust is attacked in the film. But also in terms of the relationship between Frank and Nada, when, when Nada is asking Frank to put on the glasses, he's basically asking him to trust him and to say that, you know, he's not going to hurt him. He's not going to set him up. He's not going to fool him. He's going to he needs to see. So in, in both cases, I think you've got at the core of those respective films, um, like uh, the relationship between sort of like male characters and how mm -hmm. that's really sort of difficult and complicated one. I mean, obviously... In, in The Thing, female characters don't play a role at all. Yeah. And in They Live, play like a really sort of problematic role, you know? Um, because one thing we haven't really mentioned, you know, is, is how They Live like deals with the question of gender and how much, um, how much we're meant to, you know, demonize women as opposed to men. Are the aliens sort of like equal opportunity targets of hate and fear and so on and so forth? Because... It's really interesting to me that when um, Nada first puts on the glasses, a lot of the examples of people that we see who are sort of masquerading are female. And there's that great shot of the beauty parlor uh -huh. as kind of like, you know, the classic location where, where people, but not just people, women, are pretending to be something that they're not. They're um, putting on an appearance that is, is separated from the truth. So I don't know. I mean, I'll just like float this as an idea. I mean, is the film trying to say on one level that women have like a more are more likely to rely upon deception and to are more likely to rely upon false appearances than men? Or is it an equal opportunity uh, thing? I think it's actually because uh, Letham makes an argument similar to that. He's got a couple chapters on um, what he sort of perceives to be the misogyny of the movie. And I do think that it's it's probably right. there to a degree. It, I think it's there to the degree that there's a lot of misogyny in like any movie from that you watch from the 1980s. Right. Yeah. Like go right. back and watch a movie like Revenge of the Nerds. Have you ever seen yeah. like in it in the past like you know years remote from when the movie came out? Like watch it again. It's a it's a like shockingly misogynist movie. Um, it's mm. really awful. And there's a lot of that. I mean, there's a lot of that in, in you know, sort of spoof comedies from that time and stuff. The so I think that that's, Yeah. I think right. it's But in there. Revenge of the Nerds, he basically rapes a woman in that movie, doesn't he? Yes, the there's he like, not, and not she consensual. Likes yes, there's not consensual. And she, and she basically thanks him for him. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's really <laughs> disgusting. Uh, but so I think it's there, but I don't think that... I don't know that it's there other than it's kind of like in the, maybe the, the DNA of the time that it was made. Um, because there are also, I mean, the first, the first, um, you know, zombie ghoul that you see is a kind of silver haired right. male, right. older man, like very classic businessman type. There's certainly a lot of, it's attacking, you know, the yuppie culture. And it, so I think it's when you see the women, they're sort of, it's their, it's their, 
consumerism that's being attacked and it's being attacked through sort of like a a female you know the sort of beauty images uh sold in in magazines and in and in film and and through you know um sort of superficial things like hair and and makeup and stuff so it's there but i do also think that he i mean he balances out yeah i I was gonna say like Right. Like also in that respect, Brandon, what you were saying earlier about the film's closing scene with the couple having sex, mm-hmm. it would have been like the easiest thing in the world to make the female part of the couple, the ghoul and, right. the, and the man, the one who's been fooled. But Carpenter doesn't do that. It's the other way around, which is in some ways kind of like a neat reversal of what we might have been expecting by that part, by that point of the film. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think partly where I'm coming from with this is that I've just been teaching Raymond Chandler and oh, Chandler. Yeah. Chandler is a great example of, of a writer who the most important relationships in his novels are always between men. So they seemed, it seems on the surface, again, surfaces, it seems like the relationships between men and women are where it's really at and where, you know, the narratives, that's what they're most engaged with. But in fact, that's not the case. You know, the most intense, the most complex, the most sort of affectively rich relationships in Chandler's novels always between men. And that's completely true of They Live. You know, I mean, uh, uh-huh. to go back to sort of like the gay overtones of They Live, even though they're not developed, the relationship between Frank and Nada is unquestionably at the heart of this film. They are the couple in this film. And by contrast, the sort of love interest that the film tries to give Nada, for me at least, doesn't work at all. Well, but that, that gets sabotaged immediately. I mean, when you have, uh, you know, he meets, um, what's her character name? Yeah, I forget who you're talking about. It's the one woman he interacts with. I the actress, but the character name, I forget. In any case, you immediately have the, I mean, there's even a moment uh, where he has um, kidnapped her, essentially, and he forces her to drive him back to her house, you know, up in the hill, you know, Hollywood Hills or somewhere, some fancy place, because she works at... Um, at cable 54 um which will you know be important later on because that's where they go to blow up the um the satellite and everything but uh you have this expectation when you know he's this construction work construction worker guy very buff you know because he's built like a wrestler and he's forcing her into the house and there are two guys i think i think they're supposed to be holly thompson holly thompson is the character name yeah correct Okay, so Meg Foster is the actress. Um, And these two guys see this, you know, sort of uh, bourgeois, well-to-do, pretty woman going into her house with a beefcake. And they sort of clearly look at it like, oh, this is the porn scene. And, of course, there's irony there because we know that she's being forced. But we do – I think we're being set up for, you know, the very typical sort of like in Terminator, you know, the guy abducts the girl, but he's trying to save her, and then they fall in love and and all that. You're expecting that to happen, and it just – every time – it doesn't happen then. She throws him out the window, and he rolls down the hill, and then he goes back and, and finds the glasses again, and then the fight scene happens, right? Um, I think that's mm-hmm. the order, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah, that's the order. And then, uh, and then they meet again at the end of the movie when she somehow become part of, you know, the people in the church who seem to have reorganized uh, yeah. into a bigger organization that also immediately gets busted in on by the bad guys. 
like two seconds after they get there. Um, <laughs> it's like you show up at, at you know that room in Hoth where everybody's got maps and stuff. They've got all that stuff set up and they're ready to mount their resistance and then like the wall bursts open and everybody gets killed. <laughs> and you think that, oh, she's actually maybe she's, you know, she's either a double agent or she's a good guy. But no, she's just another bad guy and yeah. the relationship never went anywhere. Yeah, she, she winds Frank. up. She winds up shooting Frank. Yeah, she winds up being yeah. being not trustworthy. When we're going back to whether you find well, women, she's the question a, a of women. Yeah. Well, what I was trying to get at is the relationship between surface and depth, because um, on the one hand, that's the content of the film, the theme of the film. It's right. our ability to read underneath the surface and see what's underneath. But also, it strikes me that that's a, a good way of thinking about how to actually talk about this film and how to read it. Because on the surface, they live as a B-movie. Not a particularly distinguished one at that. But obviously, from what we've been talking about, if you read beneath the surface of that B-movie, you've got a movie that's doing all of this other stuff as well. So it seems to me that there's a kind of connection between the form of the movie and how we read it and how we talk about it and the sorts of ideas that the film itself You see what I mean? Yeah, well, I in both that... cases, I mean, in both cases, we're talking about a relationship between surface and depth. Yeah, uh, that's sort of what I, that's part of what I was getting at earlier on saying that, like, you know, clearly you have a movie. It's not like John Carpenter couldn't have made this into a different kind of movie. He clearly could have made it into a very um, polished uh, science fiction horror thing but he didn't so that has to be a choice and i think part of the i think part of the choice goes back to its source of the ray nelson story and the sort of pulpiness of that story but yeah. also i think that there's um i mean let me let me read you a quote that is also interesting that is from um it's from a it's quoted in a review of the movie that came out when the movie came out but it's a quote from john carpenter and he says, uh, my prediction is few folks will get it, that being the allegory. But most will say, what is he talking about? Is he talking about me? Then they'll get in their BMWs, drive home, take off their expensive clothes and Rolex walks, watches, and slip into their jacuzzis and say, nah, that's not about me. That, to I me know is, that's what I did uh, after I saw the film. That's like, that's like a really... <laughs> not knowing who your audience is uh, right, statement. Right, right. Yeah. But at the same time, so I think that there's an element that comes from that, that there's that the movie is sort of in, in certain ways incoherent. But I do think that some of the some of the incoherences are are intentional, either in a play because they're being playful or because they're trying to make something that looks like a B movie or just because, you know, to throw in a couple of uh, monkey wrenches makes it sort of yeah. more fun and allows for more interpretations. But I do think that there's part of it that stems from him thinking that like his audience, like, I mean the, the, the meaning or the, the sort of ostensible sort of, you know, surface meaning of the movie is pretty painfully clear. Like it's pretty obvious. So if he thought that people weren't going to get it, it's, it's a yeah. bit strange. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say that the incoherence of the movie is is what I like the most about it, you oh, know. Def definitely. And 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 in that sense, you know, I really 
although it, I didn't like it the first time I saw it, but the, when I saw it again, I really appreciated the conclusion of the movie for that reason. Uh-huh. Because on the one hand, in that scene that takes place right toward the end of the movie on the rooftop of uh, the cable channel 54, um, yeah. you've got like a, a tailor-made dramatic conclusion. You know, Nada achieves his goal. Um, he, he knocks out the transmitter. Now everyone is going to be able to see the truth. He dies, you know, what is arguably a heroic death. He flips the bird to the aliens and to, right. you know, the audience, and, and, and cut, you know, camera goes blank at that point. You've got a great end to the movie. But it seems to me that what comes after that is both what people, some people would point to and say, this is evidence of the film's incoherence, but also for me, it's an evidence of like why the film's so interesting because that closing kind of like you know minute or two of these little sort of montage of, of images where people are beginning to see the truth of what's around them i think that's a great way to end the movie precisely because it it leaves so many questions unanswered you know like what's going to happen from this point um, you know, where is this going to go? We don't know any of that, but we get these little glimpses of what this new reality is going to look like when these strangers in our midst are suddenly sort of like unmasked and we can see them. And Carpenter doesn't provide any sort of like resolution about where that's going to happen. I love that about the film. You know, there's an interesting um, thing about the the differences between the um, the story slash comic and the movie. I think one of the most interesting things about um, that are is that the the story ends essentially the same way in that Nada dies. There's a point of view problem in the narration because he's he's narrating the in the story he it's a first person narration, but he sort of describes himself. Well, okay, I have to set up this premise in the story early on. The police commissioner, who is of course a fascinator or one of the aliens calls him knowing that he's that he's been awoken right mm-hmm. um which i just also want to point out now like in in uh political speech people talking about being woke right <laughs> that's right. like a pretty interesting i mean it's like a very direct parallel but so like now that he's woke uh the police commissioner knows this and he calls nada and he says um you know, if you hear something from a fascinator, you have to listen to the command. So that's why all the commands work. If they tell you to obey or they tell you to work or marry and reproduce, you do because it's been spoken by them or, or given by them. And so the police commissioner says, um, you know, how you know, however woke you might be, uh, you are going to die tomorrow of a heart attack at eight o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. So Nada goes around, kills a bunch of aliens. Um, and then he ends up sort of decloaking the aliens by taking a corpse of one of the aliens that he's killed and in a, like a funny voice holding him in front of the TV and going, you can see us now, kill us. And so everybody can now see them because it's supposedly, it's again, like a high schooler wrote it. Uh, int- I also wanted to mention, uh, you know, for people who are interested, look up uh, Ray Nelson because he's a very interesting guy. He's one of only two people to have um, co-written a book with Philip K. Dick. Uh, back in the day, he was like living in Paris and hanging out with Michael Moorcock and like smuggling uh, Henry Miller books out of Paris into the United States. He 
wrote a book called How to Fuck Like the Stars, and he had this whole thing about how everybody should be allowed to to have any sort of porn they want, and that like child porn was fine because nobody ever got pregnant by by looking at a picture. That was in a radio show, which you can find on YouTube. <laughs> and the radio guys are like, "Okay, this interview's over." Um, he's a real nut job, and he also invented the beanie copter. Um, <laughs> so, and it, so seriously, look this guy up. It's like a rap. I spent like a whole evening reading about this dude. He's a real trip. Um, the beanie. Copter. And Jonathan Lethem knew him in Berkeley, and tells a couple stories about him but in any case i think it's really interesting at the end of the story the one thing that i think he did better than carpenter is that he i mean not not a in the movie dies but not in any i mean he just dies because it's sort of you know he accomplishes his goal and goes out like a like a hero but in the story he dies because the fascinator told him he would Mm -hmm. so he does. He does manage to see the truth for a, a, a length of time and fight back. But ideology still has him. He was mm-hmm. told to die, and he did. So he didn't even escape ideology. He just managed to kill some aliens and do something to kind of unveil them. But he's still as much affected by it as he was before, even though he's awake. And I think that's actually something that that Carpenter maybe missed when he was doing his version. Well, I mean, the the thing that occurs to me about that is just to say that perhaps what both versions have in common is that they both disagree with that cliche, the truth shall set you free. Right. Yeah. And you know what? No, it won't. Because it's not like the revelation of how things really are is going to give you some kind of like magical power to change things. It takes more than accurate perception. I mean, accurate perception is maybe like the precondition, if you will. Um, and I think the film has lots of examples of that. Um, but, you know, beyond that, it doesn't really achieve very much unless you've got the numbers and the weapons to back it up with. And they don't. <laughs> yeah, you don't get any sense, but you don't really see any alien weapons other than they all ha- seem to have that kind of communicator watch on them you know what yeah I mean? it's kind of like kind of like a forerunner of the apple watch yeah <laughs> yeah that's, that's where they got the idea from i think speaking <laughs> of did anybody else notice that in several scenes there's they use uh the guards are using the pke meteors from ghostbusters oh really yeah the ones with the little thing that folds up you know, oh, that's that cool. Yeah, they're holding like in two scenes. Like the guards are running and holding it for some reason. I don't know why they need to find Roddy Piper with the PKE meter. Right. Unless it takes place in the Ghostbusters universe. It could be. It could all fold in together. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of like details, I mean, one of the things I noticed watching it this time around that I hadn't noticed before is when Nada is at the newsstand, um, in the background, one of the papers behind him um, is a uh, true crime book about the uh, Hillside Stranglers, an L.A.-based serial killer duo. And I thought, to me, that resonated just because there is another example of a kind of hidden danger that's like right in front of you. 
read beneath the surface, this apparently sort of, you know, banal and unthreatening surface, and see what was underneath, you could be aware of the danger, but you can't. Because in the real world, Hoffman lenses don't exist. And so the suicide stranglers were able to sort of go about their work mm -hmm. um, because they just appeared to be ordinary people. Now, it may just be like a random detail, but even if it, even if it is just a random detail, it sort of resonates in interesting ways with other things that the film is doing. There's also a, a golf magazine in the background that has a headline that says, uh, I think it's, Let, T or, Let TV Teach You. But it's actually just a, a real golf magazine. <laughs> right, right. Oh, the other thing that we haven't talked about, which is interesting, is the uh, Shepard Ferry stuff. You know, the, uh, the Obey, Andre the Giant has a posse and uh, Obey, and he ended up doing the, uh, the Obama change poster or hope poster. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and of course he took that obey message from the movie. It's kind of interesting, the, you know, the movement from the story to the movie to, you know, a, a graphic designer slash graffiti artist, uh, being inspired to do this camp, this graffiti campaign, and then ending, ending up being like making the most iconic, uh, political campaign ad pretty much of all time. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like it's creative repurposing. And, you know, I mean, on one level, you want to give that an optimistic spin and to say, you know, there's a big difference between the obey sign in They Live and the Obama sort of hope poster. And of course, I don't want to argue that they're completely equivalent to each other, um, but they've also got more to do with each other than many people might um, suppose. And that's what I, that's, that's kind of like, you know, coming back to something we were talking about a little earlier there's a strange kind of way in which the revelation in this film is not really a revelation in the sense that, you know, no one is sort of like, no one who watches the film, I think, is genuinely surprised by the revelation. And what I mean by that is that we, we all feel to one degree or another that we, we live our lives according to someone else's rules, um, mm -hmm. that we live it according to a system where, you know, we only have like so much choice in how we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. So all the film does in a sense is to sort of give that relatively kind of inchoate feeling a really kind of visible target. And we can now sort of like identify um, the source of that feeling that sort of like gnaws away at us. But it's not like the film is doing anything that like totally, you know, shocks us. So we think, wow, I had never really considered that possibility before. Yes, we have. We consider it every day of our lives when we drag ourselves out of bed and go to work, even though we just want to turn over and go back to sleep. Um... I think it's sort of interesting that uh, it's so it's so open to interpretation because Carpenter... You know, I think, you know, he had a lot of, it seems at least when you listen to him talk about it, that he had a lot of intention. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and, and, but, but it is, it's sort of, you know, as David was saying, I mean, you, you know, whether you're on the right or the left, you could sort of find ways to argue that it's for your, your ideology or whatever. And I, I don't know. I mean, so is it, is it effective? I mean, did he do, did he get, did Carpenter do what he set out to do? I don't know, you know. I think one, one way to maybe twist that that could be a good wrap up for the podcast would be to, you know, sort of talk more explicitly about what is it, what does it mean or what's the usefulness of a film like this in 2017? You know, why would you go back and watch They Live 
um, in the context of when you can just watch the news. When that's a great idea. That's a great idea. You know, and my personally speaking, my answer to that would be that you know, from from today's perspective, I think one of the best things you can take away from the film um, is the necessity of being like a critical reader, like mm-hmm. someone who never takes for granted what it is that you're being told. So even if it's just in that very kind of basic banal sense of like question authority, or if it's in that sort of like, you know, more a slightly more nuanced sense of, um, you know, get your news from multiple sources or don't believe everything that you're told. It seems to me that watching this film today is almost kind of like, you know, required viewing for sort of existing um, in a political atmosphere that's defined more than ever by conspiracy and unreality. And so our ability to distinguish between what's true and what's bullshit is more essential today than it's ever been. And so They Live is kind of like a a same importance. Yeah. I think, too, you could say that the... uh you know, the we talked about the film being sort of incoherent at times. I mean, even even if you're a conspiracy theorist, life is itself pretty incoherent sometimes. So, uh, being able to apply the critical readings to reality is is just as tricky as looking at this movie and seeing things that seem to go against each other. It's like, yeah, that's how life works too. But can you actually perceive a, you know? Can you see through certain things that really are genuine uh, yeah. manipulations? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of something that William Burroughs said about his cutout method when he he was criticized for various reasons um, for, for its excessive experimentalism. The way he defended it was to say, look, in its own way, my cutout method is just as realistic as so-called realist novels because human consciousness doesn't sort of unfold in a neat linear narrative it's sort of made up of this accumulation of more or less random, incoherent pieces of information that you then sort of intuit connections between. And so that's, that's how I sort of understand the incoherence of something like they live. It is actually sort of in its own way a more accurate reflection of what it's like to sort of live in the world, of what it's like to sort of walk down the street and process random pieces of information as you, as you, you know, go through your day than it is reading a so-called realist novel that sort of, in a sense, does all the processing work for you. Um, Whereas what Carpenter is saying is, like, don't trust what any of those things on the newsstand tell you. Like, make up your own narrative. Like, make your own decisions about what it is that you see and make your own story. And that's it we just finished our conversation with professor david schmidt he is an english professor of english at the university of buffalo uh we really appreciate him coming on uh his most recent book which is called globalization and the state of contemporary crime fiction uh you should check it out uh because david is a pretty he's, amazing a, he's a walking encyclopedia of crime, crime fiction, fiction. And true crime and, you know, from Edgar Allan Poe to the most recent, uh, he's actually knows a lot about international crime fiction. He sees, we'll have to bring him back and do something with that because, uh, he's a kind of, uh, fount of knowledge. He could be a, a regular, you know, and we are a good friend of the show, David, you know, that's right. (laughs) Friend of the show. 
David Schmidt. <laughs> Correct. So, uh, have you guys got some shoutros for this episode? I have Ooh. got a, Yep, I'll start us off with the shoutro. Um, Do a shoutro. Yeah, my shoutro is for a movie called Blue Ruin. Um, it's basically a very realistically grounded revenge fantasy, sort of in the vein of like, almost like a Taken or something like that. Only mm-hmm. the guy is really, really bad at revenge. <laughs> He's just not very good at it. He's just... <laughs> it follows this guy who... <clears throat> His parents were killed, and the guy who killed his parents, and it devastates him, and it like ruins his life. He's kind of unable to move on with it and get on with his life. Uh, so the opening of the movie finds him like homeless and living out of a car, and he the guy gets released, and he goes on basically, or you know, he wants revenge for his, the murder of his parents, and it's just all the the, uh, the terrible things that he has to do, and it's really really well done. I think it's by um, the director is one Jeremy Saulnier, Saulnier, Saulnier. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but he's the guy. He also did um, the Green Room, which has Patrick Stewart heading up a gang. Oh, of, nice. uh, yeah, Patrick, number one, number one, number one, <laughs> a gang Make of, so. of neo Nazis so. in Oregon. So Make yeah, so, is that, in Oregon. Is it, doesn't love that. Is it explicitly comic? No, or is no, it's sort not. Of like I know, I know I'm sort laughing of, uh, when I'm describing it. No, it's actually really, really kind of a sad and depressing. <laughs> like like you, kind of, you kind of feel bad for the guy because he's just not able to get on with his life. And it, you know, what it That's takes. That's hilarious. Ha! Oh, yeah. And he just, you know, it explores what it actually would take to, you know, act out that kind of revenge and the kind of the damage it does to you and everybody around you. So check it out if you're <laughs> looking for real. That sounds, uh, sounds fantastic. <laughs> Summer fun. Sounds fest. like just the uplifting story I need in my life right now, Eric. All right, Jonathan, do you have something? Yeah, I I just watched a couple episodes of this series that's on Netflix called Abstract, The Art of Design, which is... Oh, interesting. Watch- I actually started watching one of these. Tell me, I didn't get very far, so tell me what you think. I, well... I'm a big fan of this guy Platon, who's a he's a photographer, a portrait photographer. He did like that um, picture of Bill Clinton, where it's like down between his legs. You know that famous picture of Bill Clinton. Anyway, he's. he's I could re- make some jokes about that, yes, but I'll just well, let I, you roll with that. I think that's the photo sort of calls for that. But um, <laughs> but anyway, it's like a, one of the episodes is about him, so that's what got me to watch it. But the other, it's a really, it's just a just a cool take on everything because it's just like different people in different industries and like how they do things in like, you know, composition and stuff like that. I just thought it was really interesting. I mean, it goes <clears> into like, like industrial design too, doesn't it? Right, like, like, well, design one, it's of, like the uh, guy that designs Nikes is one guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, it's like a graphic designer, a car designer. Um, well, there's a bunch of them, but anyway, they're, they're just really cool and interesting. Well done. Very cool. Cool. Yeah. Are you guys only going to do one? Because I have two. Because now well, I feel fine. like I'm sort of you know, like hogging the. It's not a race. I feel a race. I feel. You could do whatever you like. I feel bad. Actually, one of these is just because we haven't had an episode in so long that this is my one from back when we were originally going to record this. Uh, and, uh, and now I have another 
it was a little i'm sorry i didn't mean to criticize you guys for okay. you know setting us back uh weeks with your shenanigans <laughs> but <laughs> uh my first my first my gene splicing research was at a critical stage i explained <laughs> this to you time I've and again to, i've got to split this gene I can't make it tonight. That's what Eric said. These rabbits must be shoes. <laughs> My first one is... Uh, so, here's a little story. When we were all in high school, through... Uh, I think it was Chris Black, who was a friend of ours who passed away in 2005, uh, got us all very interested in Kurt Vonnegut Jr. And one of the books that we all read kind of more or less simultaneously was breakfast of champions, which at the time, if you haven't read it, it's got a lot of funny illustrations and pictures of assholes and wide open beavers and a bunch of silliness. And, uh, it's a story of a guy who thinks that everybody else is, uh, is robots and he just goes on a murderous rampage. Actually, he doesn't kill anybody, but he hurts some people. Uh, in any case, it's a, it's a, Pretty silly book, but it's also pretty trenchant. It's actually very much in line with They Live, which is why I was, you know, recalled to it and doing my shout show here. Uh, but we have a, a mutual friend, Mike King, who I talked to one day and he said, I just, I reread uh, Breakfast of Champions. I mean, we read this back when we were like 15, 16 years old and like totally adored it. And I was like, oh, that's great. Is it so? Should I reread it? Should I pick it up? And he was like, oh, no, God, no. <laughs> he was like, no, if you're not, no. We read it when we were 16. Don't, he said, don't ever don't pick revisit. up that book again. He said, you were an adult now. Like, I'm a 41 year old man. He's like, don't read that book again because it will completely destroy your appreciation of that book. Like, your nostalgia and fondness for that book. Don't do it. So, I was, uh, I'm a big listener of audiobooks. I love audiobooks. And I was uh, tooling around on Audible, and they have John Malkovich reading Breakfast of Champions. <laughs> and I listened to a sample, and I was like, no matter what Mike King says, I have to listen because it's so good. And it really is. I mean, it's weird to listen to an audiobook of a book that actually has a significant amount of illustration in it, like sort of dumb illustration. But what's actually, it's even better because John Malkovich describes to you what the picture is, <laughs> which is like actually twice as funny as seeing Kurt Vonnegut's kind of clumsy, shitty drawing of something. So just the total weirdness. I mean, he just nails it. It's so good. It is, uh, I don't even know how long it is. It's not a very long audiobook. It's maybe like six hours or something. So worth it. I like definitely amplified the, uh, the greatness of it. And the second one that I have is a, um, a series, which is, I think, hopefully still ongoing it's uh published by bloomsbury it's called 33 and a third and it's uh, basically authors writing about albums as uh, you know talking about an album and the history surrounding it and the making of the album and its significance and the one that i just read was uh on david bowie's low which is the first of his berlin triptych by hugo wilkin it was published i think in about 2005 or six um but just a really great analysis of the album. A lot of things that I disagreed with in terms of how he 
um, describe some of the songs, but I think that he gets at the, he does a really good job of situating Bowie in like the sort of Cold War Berlin of the, of the uh, late seventies connecting to like station and station, uh, station to station to low to like the later albums and just like Iggy pop is all over the place. Like kraut rock comes in. Like it's just a, a great short journey. It's also a very short book, but totally worth it. So uh, we'll throw that up on the site. Cool. So that is it for this. What is this? Our fifth. We're almost beating the fade, guys. We're, we're fighting the fade. We're trying to get to six. Six is the magic number. So this is our fifth six. episode. Our, it's not our sixth. It's our fifth. Six. All right. <laughs> this is our fifth episode. And, we're fighting um, the fade. We're fighting the fade. And as always, this is World Famous Defenders. And if you want to see us at our live show, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to John's Place in new jersey wherever you live and uh again uh you are going to be where are you going to be at uh brandon you're going to be at the chuckle hut in poughkeepsie i will be in the chuckle hut in poughkeepsie on uh october 5th 2027 2027 and john do you have any upcoming dates you want to uh uh i'm going to be uh at richard's exciting tattletale room yeah uh it won't be doing any comedy though it's just a little they have the french ticklers there don't they <laughs> french yeah, tickler. exactly and as always, I'll be appearing next Thursday, regardless of whenever you listen to this. That's right. <laughs> Check you. him out. Thank you, Take and good night. From, the, Thank from you. our secret underground lair, we have been world famous. The world defenders. famous defenders.